You're listening to I Have Some Notes, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Welcome everyone to a Side Notes edition of I Have Some Notes. I'm your host, Liam Preswick. I'm Scott C. Bourgeois. I'm Greg Beaver. And today we are going to be discussing uh, some uh, pertinent and relevant and timely documentaries uh, we have enjoyed, question mark, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, recently that are uh, sort of two, two of them that are on the same topic of, uh, you know, social media and life in the digital age and how the internet has become such a, an insidious part of our daily life. Um, and those uh, two films in particular are uh, the Netflix documentary uh, The Social Dilemma and uh, the indie documentary Feels Good Man. So, yeah. Um, how, just in general, how, how are you guys uh, feeling about this? Uh, just having watched both these documentaries, like living, like even just interacting with social media, like, because these really got under my skin. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, some pretty grim stuff. Yeah, I, I think uh, the social dilemma definitely dropped at the right time for me. Where um, I've been, I've been thinking about this stuff pretty heavily, especially during in in the pandemic. I've been watching my social media habits uh, much more closely, and mm-hmm. uh, I think really getting in tune with and understanding better how addictive uh, social media is and and learning to recognize the signs of that addiction. I was telling Aaron tonight that, you know, I've learned to feel the triggers when they happen. Like if you're having, sometimes when you're just having a normal conversation with someone mm-hmm. and someone, someone says something to you randomly and it just sort of reminds you of a post you made and then mm-hmm. suddenly that triggers your brain immediately to like, I got to check that post. You know, and it's and that and that to me is like a like a sign of like that addictive habit forming and that just constant need to keep grabbing your phone, keep looking at your at social media on your computer or whatever. So it's it's I've been thinking about it a lot and and watching this documentary was I don't like there was a there was a a part of each of the social dilemma and uh feels good man that felt soul crushing to me yeah very bleak yeah i know what you mean about the 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 addiction thing because i've i've been i've i'm not perfect but i have mostly stopped using facebook for about three months uh and not only do i feel that um that that thing you're talking about of that that urge to want to pick it up and look at it in the middle of a work day in the middle of a conversation like when there's absolutely other things you should be doing or just attention you should be giving, um, but even more like drugs and why I finally had to be like, I'm, at least this particular site, I just have upped my Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like Facebook in particular, uh, much like a drug, I was leaving like worse off. Like I was leaving angry. Like it was ruining my day. Like a like doing cocaine too early in the day. Like it's like this is my whole my whole day is shot now. Like you know like. <laughs> Um, I was I was really like jonesing for that like no I need I need good good social media bumps not bad because I'm I'm you know yeah so I came into social media when I was working in the news media and so I needed to follow it for work and uh, even though I no longer work in the news media I still I have a drive to be up to date on what's going on. Like, I like to mm-hmm. be informed, and that's just residual from my former line of work. So, yeah, I check Facebook and Twitter fairly regularly through the day, but I've kind of trained myself to put it down so I don't fall into doom scrolling the way I used to. But, mm-hmm. yeah, my wife and I both will still occasionally, like, catch ourselves doom scrolling, where you're just, like, f- just following the unending torrent of bad news that's coming in. Uh, especially this year because we're stuck at home and like it's it's easy to just like sit on the couch and look at your Twitter feed right as opposed to mm-hmm. think about how you can't go and see friends 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 especially these days too, the the fact that like misinformation is 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 spreading in a time when we need it more than ever. Um, uh, I think that I think it's yeah the the social dilemma. We'll we'll sort of start by talking uh, about that one. I think because it's probably the one uh, more of our listeners are likely to have seen. Though I do highly recommend uh, checking out Feels Good Man, which we'll discuss later. But yeah, the social dilemma really uh, strikes that timely chord of of. Um, how this uh, uh, technology is affecting our life in the middle of a pandemic. They were able to get content in on that subject pretty quickly, which uh, I appreciate. But uh, just for those that might not know, The Social Dilemma, uh, directed by a fellow named Jeff uh, Orlowski, uh, written by Jeff Orlowski, to the extent you can write a documentary. Um, lots of different people are interviewed with this. Uh, I'm, I'm Tristan Harris uh, sort of is the... the um, the closest thing it come, they come to having a, a documentary protagonist, sort of you follow his, um, what would you call it, like enlightenment or like understanding that, that we need to, to correct the path it's we're a, on. It's a little inconvenient truth-esque where you mm-hmm. kind of, you're kind of going, watching him do his PowerPoint presentation in certain places. That's a very good comparison, actually. This really kind of has a bit of our inconvenient um, truth vibe to it. Uh, our generations, not not that <laughs> good Lord, like we still we need the inconvenient truth now more than ever. But you know what I mean. <laughs> like this problems <laughs> inconvenient truth. It's interesting that people called an inconvenient truth very alarmist when it came out, and we've seen people call the social dilemma very alarmist now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people. Yeah, interesting that, isn't it? Yeah. You ever go to the mall? Like, you ever been in West Edmonton Mall when the fire alarm has gone off? No. It's so disappointing. No one, no one does anything. No one, no one moves. Nobody acts like there's a problem. And it's they're just like, well, somewhere in the mall there's a fire, but it's not immediately in front of me, so I'm gonna keep going into Aldo. Like, and and it, it's that every every time I see people sort of take these concerns and be like, you're being alarmist, you're being a bummer. I just like I just see people in a mall with a fire alarm going off. It's like, what the f- is wrong with you? Yeah, I think the the trouble with the the subject matter of the social dilemma is that it's it's not as if this subject matter hasn't been covered before many 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 times over. Yeah. Um. It, it, as far as the content of this documentary, um, there wasn't too much that was new to me. What was what was new to me was being told the story by many of the individuals responsible for building the technology itself, which I found, yeah. you know, sort of endlessly fascinating and, and obviously somewhat scary. Um, I put out a, a on my own personal Facebook, I, I asked people what they feel. I, I, you know, I told them that we were watching these documentaries and, you know, I just kind of asked, like, how do you feel about the state of social media these days? And there was quite a few responses that were essentially, like, you know these movies, like you, like Scott said, are, are kind of scaremongering, and and I don't know. I I I just don't I don't see it that way. Um, there wasn't a lot in here. That, like outside of a couple um, statistical moments, where I was like, well, this may be just correlation, not causation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah. There's, I, I think that, I know exactly I the graph you're talking about, but yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean. There's a fine line between scaremongering and informing, um, mm-hmm. and like, but like informing people of a potential problem, ideally before it becomes a much bigger problem, right? So, and yeah. and like, where do you draw that line between? Oh, these people are being alarmist. They don't know what they're talking about. They're just trying to like scare people, and oh, you know, maybe there's something here that we should take a closer look at and and be more cognizant of so that we can try to take steps to remedy it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's really a, that's sort of the thesis of this film is, like, we need to, if not, like, capital R regulate uh, these these companies, and that's sort of the... They're like, yeah, you need to make it a financial incentive and, the, you know, the same reason you know, a lawnmower has safety, you know, shields and shit on it. Um, 
but they also sort of just be like it is we we have a moral impair like just as the people who make these tools we have a moral obligation to our fellow man to do this just on a basic like universal good level um and uh yeah it, it's it's almost as much um it if you go just beyond the fear-mongering it's almost an argument against capitalism like <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it kind of is that's also a lot of documentaries these days yeah <laughs> yeah it's, uh i mean we're we we've we're at kind of the the peak capitalism capitalism era and uh i think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that like you know hey this this system in in its in its end stages is not that great for that many people mm-hmm. it's super great for a very few people yes but even that, it was. I think that's what makes this documentary work. Like you were saying, Greg, is you see some of the people who absolutely are are likely wealthy tech individual, you know, tech tech career people who are like, you know, they they grew a conscience while working on this stuff. Um, and it almost did. I almost get the feeling like obviously Mark Zuckerberg wasn't um, interviewed in this, but one of the one of the people they interview talk about like these guys being trapped by like shareholder expectations, and like I do kind of wonder how much of it is that of like. I, I think when you're like, when you're building these tools, like, you know they're, they're building these tools to serve the advertisers, and and you know there's a world of difference between like there's there's a million miles between building an advertising tool and building a, a tool that helps Nazis gain supporters. You know, I, yeah, I think like those a- two those two things those two things don't really feel like they should collide so when you're the person who's in charge of how are we gonna make facebook you know a profitable monetizable entity um you know it it like the you know you don't blame them for going the advertising road Mm -hmm. and you don't blame them for trying to make those tools better and continually improving them and and um, you know, it, it, I mean, this is just kind of how the whole capitalist system works is that, you know, you're, you're constantly in service of, of the shareholders and in order to com- continually please them, you have to continually grow. Mm-hmm. So the game becomes trying to, you know, con- you know, eat all the competition with as much as much as possible and and kind of what's happened in uh in facebook's case is that um they eventually decided that in order to continue to grow they need to eat the entire internet yeah you know and and like they effectively becoming the front page of the internet no offense to reddit but like that's that's sort of kind of their goal right they they build they build their tools so that you know you almost never leave facebook um and 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 in the case of your mobile phone for example when you're when you're looking at news and stuff like that like it almost it almost doesn't feel like you leave that app if you're reading something on your phone like you you you're reading cbc.ca and you're and you know or something like that but but Facebook you know, you're you. going you're going straight back to it's it's like an it's like the news is like an app within Facebook, right? And yeah. uh, so, like effectively, at that point, they are the internet. Yeah, that's and, what and happened. It, it, Myanmar, you know, the, they were talking the, the, about that. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 more that the what that you know what that does is that gives them an incredible amount of of power and and obviously um, made. Uh, you know, advertising for, um, you know, media, other media entities, very, very challenging, which is why a lot of them are struggling, not solely because of Facebook. There's certainly a lot of other reasons. Uh, But yeah, I mean, that's just how the system is designed. So like Facebook is doing the thing that, that capitalism tells them to do. And, and on an individual basis, you, you know, the, these people who are designing these tools, you don't necessarily blame them. Like, yeah, like you could, you could argue that things like the like and the react buttons and things like that, those, those 
things in and of themselves are they're not problems. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's you, you write a comment, someone likes it. It's nice to be recognized, right? Yeah. But it's how, the, it's when how they're you implemented. Are, but when it when it becomes uh, a situation where you're 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 constantly needing that recognition, which is what happens in social media, right? That's why you check it all the time. Is because you you start to need it. Um, and it, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just part of our, it's part of our DNA to be recognized by our peers. Right. And, and that's where the addiction comes so that, so it, it, the tools are, are innocent in their inception. And then of course they become much more insidious in and of themselves in service of the growth of Facebook. Well, and then mm-hmm. once you have that insidiousness that creeps into your daily life, that's where it becomes a danger when a bad actor tries to co-opt it. And... Yes. None of these tools are inherently evil. There, I would argue there are very few tools that have ever been invented that are inherently evil. But like so many other tools, it's easy for a bad actor to come along and misuse it in a way it was not intended towards nefarious ends. And when you are so reliant on social media and you are so reliant on the positive feedback that you get from it, when someone comes along and finds a way to weaponize that, they can, they can hack your brain, basically. Yeah. yeah. And and they've got the people who make it over a barrel because they're paying top shelf, you know, for it. Yeah. 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 And for the, so for there's, the privilege. but yeah. that's why you see Zuckerberg on talk shows and in front of Congress, and he's <laughs> like flop sweat. sweat. <laughs> yeah, he's he's sweaty and pale, <laughs> and his voice is trembling, and he's trying to give like a very neutral answer to something that he clearly knows. Like, he knows. He knows. He knows. And he understands. But he can't do anything about it because it would ruin him. And that's the situation that he finds himself in. And that's the situation that a lot of these people find themselves in. Yeah. It's hard to feel bad for them because they're, like, incredibly rich, but... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't really feel that bad for for Mr. Zuckerberg or most of these executives. But I mean, like, like you say, Scott, like he knows what's going on. Yeah. He's not blind. He's not stupid. And yeah. And I mean, and to a certain extent, like, you know, he, he, I think the thing that he understands uh, most clearly is that it's not possible for um, Facebook to eliminate all the bad actors. No. The way that the platform works. It's just, it just isn't like people want them to moderate all the, you know, all the Nazis on, on Facebook or, uh, moderate all the, um, uh, entities that are using its advertising tools to, uh, push out lies and things like that. And it, like, you have to think for a stop and think for a second, like, I like, how is that possible? Yeah. Like as- the, 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 the level of manpower uh mm-hmm. in, necessary to m- moderate at that scale is just it's just not possible for for facebook and and there's no also no financial incentive for them to do it which is the no. big problem yeah and because this yeah i think that's the first right? problem and the, the the effort is the second because any, anything is possible they can they can you know monitor whatever that you know and yeah, the, the social the, the social dilemma points that out they said that they say that like they don't they don't have any other uh, indicator other than a click, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, they they can't evaluate what's true and isn't true because because there's no there's no real data point for that. Yeah, well, and, no, yeah, and and then the algorithm, yeah, and like Be- an algorithm is not intelligent enough yet, yet. <laughs> To understand nuance, right? And you need human eyes on something like that. And Facebook could hire an army of humans tomorrow to do that, but it would be financially devastating to the company. And as you say, they have no incentive to do it because at the end of the day, their customers are shareholders and the shareholders want to make monies. Uh, how did you just as the, as the as the way it was presented as a documentary? How did you guys feel about the sort of fictional narrative framing device with like the family and the three guys at the dial? I liked the three guys at the dial. Weirdly, uh, the family drama stuff though felt a little flat at times. Um, it didn't oh, it really? didn't do it enough to really land with me. Does that make sense? 
Mm-hmm. I didn't. I was. I had a similar the, thought, and then also realized you couldn't get to the dial guys without also doing that. Yeah, I did like the dial guys, though. I thought that was that was kind of fun. But yeah, I part of me wonders if it was because we didn't spend enough time with the family for me to get emotionally invested in them. They were just kind of there. Yeah, and like it sounds weird to say I was watching a documentary and the fiction didn't yeah. hook me <laughs> but well you know what also too, I, I don't know I think, that... I, I think that's a fair criticism yeah. scott although i i i somewhat disagree i i like i usually i hate typically when my documentaries try to do um you know uh fictionalized elements or or even recreations of events i generally don't like it i just want to hear I just want to hear the story told through the people who lived it, generally. Mm-hmm. I, on the other but hand, I felt like I really like the big short, and it is kind of a fictionalized look yeah, at yeah. Uh, at the financial crash. And I don't know. I feel like maybe you could have done something like that here, and it might have been very compelling. But like that's comparing yeah, apples and the, oranges. The, the social bit. network. Yeah, but it's kind of comparing apples <laughs> and oranges too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, for me, this actually worked quite well. Um, these elements, even and even though I typically dislike it, um, the, I, I, f- I felt like the family elements were well produced um, and they were well acted. I, I thought they did a good job of writing the family as a series of characters with different perspectives on social media. Yeah, and that exactly was really, what that device is really helpful in in sort of guiding you through the narrative of the documentary. Yeah. And and there were uh, there were elements of it that were genuinely heartbreaking. And I don't I don't know if you guys and maybe this is why it, maybe it worked better for me. But like one of the characters has the same name as my daughter. Yeah. And <laughs> that was so that was a little bit was the little uh, gr- was it the little girl character or the older daughter? Yeah. Yeah, no, it was a little girl character. That's I didn't catch that. Aw. Yeah, so that yeah. and like and that and like that that particular part of the documentary that that's where they get into uh, talking about uh how social media is affecting kids and um you know how it affects their self-esteem and and, it, and it's where they make the claim that um suicides among um preteens and teenagers have gone up and that uh, increase in suicides is uh, correlated with the rise of social media. Now, there's probably got to be a lot more there, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to, to prove that there's causation between the two. Yeah, that, um, that graph, that's it, the graph we were talking about earlier my, that rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my brain, my brain tells me that that probably makes sense you know it it, Mm -hmm. like it it's you know uh, like i understand like what high school was for myself and and the kinds of things that i went through in high school and you know you know were i'm quite glad that i didn't have i didn't have social media and you know going through Mm -hmm. um, middle school and high school just because i i feel like it would have been devastating at times um and I and I and I and I <laughs> I recognize like even amongst my own friends like sometimes how you know vicious we could be with each other ma- you know and, and making fun of one another and to have no break from that <laughs> where you know you can constantly talk to one another and to have everyone in class and, like, see the see the awful like, never things ending. Yeah. well not only yeah. no be punishing. break not only no break from it but also throw in the fact that you you lack context and nuance when you're posting online. And so it's very easy for something that said in person uh, that you would take as jest to take much more seriously when you read it. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought at first I thought it was weird that they took that like centerism angle. Like your kids are going to get radicalized to the center, man. Uh, That was, (laughs) that was interesting because it was clearly the movie trying not to take a side. And at first I was like, oh, this is, you're not taking a side. What a bunch of wimps. What a really, really spineless. But then I thought about it and they do pretty much flat out are like the earth is round and coronavirus is real. And I feel like because they do take 
two examples of like things that are clearly bullshit being spread, which is the earth is flat and coronavirus doesn't exist. Like these are two things mo- like most rational people of any political philosophy can can agree. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they're really fringy ideas. Um, it let them not have to get into any kind of muddy waters of being like, look how the internet radicalized all these you know Trump idiots uh, into uh, uh, believing it. Because then someone could come along and be like, well, the Antifa, both sides. And it just, like, it would, as much as I wanted them to be like, this kind of internet bullshit got us Trump and uh, the alt-right and all this bullshit, yeah. it, it would have derailed the conversation they were trying to make and the conversation they were trying to have. And so I kind of respect them for, like, it, it, was, a, it was a very elegant and smart out to not have to, like get into that and still make their point concisely i think yeah i think you're right i think that it it may have got in got in the way of of the of the the points that they were trying to get across yeah yeah i I don't necessarily fault the movie for that even though it was a little a little funny i it's yeah the movie was trying to make the point that um the internet echo chambers that we find ourselves in make it very easy for people to get radicalized and it doesn't necessarily matter which side. And by framing it as just people being radicalized on the right, which is arguably the worst kind of radicalization, yeah. um, is <laughs> by and large the way <laughs> it would be. It would be. It would. It would come across as very finger pointy. Yeah, and also that's I guess why I sort of like that we watch this other film as a sort of companion piece because it does sort of not really mince words and be like, "Do you want to see how the internet got us the alt right?" Here's a literal <laughs> biological yeah. and timeline. That is an elegant segue into that conversation. But before we get to it, how about we take a little break? Uh, yeah, I think we all uh, sober sober our thoughts here. Cut cut that part out. It makes it sound like we've been drinking. I just mean it's been a. It's no, been a, I, uh, I've I've just watched Feels Good Man. I am drinking. So <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. That's fair. I just meant more uh, clarity of mind. But uh, whatever uh, floats your boat. See you after the break. Hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden, the Well Endowed Podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can check them out right now at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Welcome back to this Side Notes edition of I Have Some Notes. We're talking documentaries that uh, cover the the world of the internet and social media that we find ourselves in today. Um, Feels Good Man was uh, uh, the movie uh, that I had sort of... uh, As soon as you had said you had watched The Social Dilemma, Greg, and were having a real hard time with it, really wanted to (laughs) chew on it with someone else, I'm like, yo, got this other one you gotta check out. Feels Good Man. Um, uh, Yeah, this one I at least was a little more like entertaining is sort of a weird word to use but um it had a bit more of a a narrative than like a um inconvenient truth like just series of dire warnings like a like a very long ted talk yeah sure there's um (laughs) there's more of a story arc to it and um and it doesn't feel um maybe punishing in the way that it it delivers its um its warnings (laughs) Uh, there's mm-hmm. definitely there's definitely parts of feels good man that feel um, I don't even, so I don't bleak. know punishing is the word but yeah yeah bleak 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 is probably the correct word yeah, yeah. Uh, and the interesting thing is that while it does have a narrative arc um, it had a real downer ending in the original cut and it was only due to some late breaking developments that it has a kind of bittersweet ending <laughs> yeah a slight like in the, in the the loosest sense of the term it has a happy ending um yeah. but yeah this, uh, i, I, I this don't movie, imagine like oh. this this movie maybe not everyone has seen so maybe we should just break down exactly what yeah, this good man is all about that's why i was like this movie and then i was about to say for those who maybe have not seen it sorry perfect room no no we're on the same page it's great um we're also recording remotely this if that's our biggest bump we're doing all right um uh yeah this this movie is a sort of about the history of uh pepe the frog uh the meme i'm sure lots of people have seen in various forms or another either being sad or being uh smug or being hitler um uh being donald trump 
uh, etc. And it just sort of chronicles uh, the artist who originally drew that character, a a guy named Matt Fury, who was just this, like, hip, you know, uh, indie comic book artist who had drawn this this, uh, comic book series called Boys Club about four anthropomorphic animal roommates who just, like, are aimless stoners in a, a San Francisco, much like their creator. Uh, and then somehow just that image of Pepe in a, in a frame going, feels good, man, became a meme. And then someone made him sad. And it just, you, you, you literally, that you follow the spread like a germ, like a meme, like literal, literally the ever-changing um, sort of because they, 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 they even talk about how like memes and genes are kind of cut from the same cloth and that you know a, a very Darwin-esque um, evolution of, of traits and uh, survival of the fittest sort of also applies to ideas and it's sort of apt that it's a frog you literally watch this frog evolve into uh, a stoner cartoon who's just going oh, it feels good man into Pepe the frog the hate symbol like honest to god stamped signed sealed and delivered on the list of known hate symbols pepe the frog so yeah and and beyond and beyond kind of give away the ending a little bit yeah in the ending it it comes back around in the positive like a little bit like the shallow (laughs) end of positive (laughs) but it it it, it's hopeful it's a hopeful ending because it shows that maybe maybe this can turn around right and and maybe the artist who is legit like he feels legitimate angst over what became of a beloved character of his mm-hmm. um and and that maybe in some way he's going to be able to reappropriate it in a in a positive way and i feel like as as a creative person as someone who has like done cartoons as someone who has written stuff um that that resonates with me personally. The idea that something that you've created could get co-opted and twisted into not just something you'd never intended, but something that is the antithesis of everything you believe in. And that's, that's kind of deeply terrifying in, in a very real way. Um, th- this movie also does a good job of sort of illustrating exactly how insidious bad actors taking these tools and using them for nefarious means can be in a way that the social dilemma, uh, I think to deliberately deliver a different message like we discussed in the last half, um, avoids. Uh, This one is like, no, here's, here's like the history of Pepe according to 4chan. And to the point where they even talk to like a real, you know, uh, Fedora Tippin 4chan nerd. (laughs) Um, and he's like, yeah, it's back in the day. We just thought it was funny to put, you know, make him a Nazi. I don't know. Well, it was it, it. One of the experts they talked to uh, really hits the nail on the head here. It's they they would reappropriate Pepe in a hateful light, in an ironic way, in order to uh, keep control over it because they didn't want they they wanted to debase the symbol so much that no one else would take it from them right yeah and so they would ironically have him saying and doing atrocious things but then slowly the irony starts to slip away mm-hmm. and you and you end up radicalizing yourself essentially you start to believe the things that you're kind of originally just going wink yeah we we think this terrible thing and then eventually you've reprogrammed yourself to think the terrible thing yeah, it plays like a horror movie. Like the kids are having an irresponsible <laughs> party, and they've left the door open for the like the Nazi ghouls to sneak in. Like, yeah, I I, uh, I felt like the the the, the fascinating uh, part of the documentary, the the most fascinating part of it for me was was you know interviewing that 4chan member and him explaining that the basement dweller neckbeard sort of stereotypical internet nerd image that you have in your brain uh was a part of their culture and it was it was deliberate like they were they were taking pictures of their awful disgusting basements or rooms where they lived and 
uh, sort of competing with each other for who lived the uh, most uh, slobbish life. Pathetic life. Like, who was the most unlovable incel? Yeah. Yeah. I actually... I actually feel a great deal of um, empathy for people like that, actually. Me? There's yeah. there's a Japanese term for it called hikikomori, mm-hmm. and it's uh, something that's been going on there for a very long time, and it is people who feel so much social pressure to succeed and to uh, thrive in, in a world that objectively is kind of built to keep them down that they withdraw they they check out from society mm-hmm. and it's it's something that that has been extant in Japan for a very long time and, and and is now starting like this is this is the north american version of that it is literally exactly the same thing people who have so much social anxiety and uh so much anxiety over the idea of failing that they withdraw because you can't fail if you never do it right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that and that's like the, this, it's easy to say that they're losers, but it comes from a it comes from a deep place of of um, of loneliness and of, of feeling isolated and of feeling anxious and of not feeling a connection. And I can see how intoxicating finding more people like you online and being able to live together alone they even kind of suggest that in the in the documentary yeah is is like you you found your people and mm-hmm. then to feel like you're being attacked by people who don't understand you and who don't have empathy for you you can you get defensive it's it's human nature to get defensive yeah. and to and to protect your your society to protect your your tribe and unfortunately the way that they that that manifested was in a very hateful way for these people. Yeah. It's sort of like the best things of the internet and the worst things of the internet colliding. The, the, you know, kind of, yeah, the best thing about, you know, the, the internet is, is, has been wonderful for all sorts of subcultures and communities to find each other. And, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, a unique hobby or finding support for, you know, perhaps the LGBT community or, or any other um, type of type of marginalized group, you know, that's been able to find support for one another. And, and then there's the opposite side of the spectrum, uh, uh, you know, of 4chan where, you know, it's um, these people who, I, th- I think you're right. There's a certain amount of empathy you, you can feel for them, Scott, because um, you know you can you can empathize with their their loneliness and you can empathize with their anxieties. Um, um, but they are also people who have gone to a very very dark place. Um, oh yeah, and a, and a place where you know um, m- most of us can't follow and 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 that and it is sort of like the same thing where it's like it's like yeah they found themselves but there's there it's 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 creating this this horrible uh racist misogynist community instead of something that's much more positive mm-hmm. yeah instead about finding a way to lift each other up they've decided to tear everything else down and unfortunately yeah. that's it's it's easier to debase everything than it is to uh, and and tear it down to your level than to try to lift yourself up. It yeah. reminds me of that uh, Michael Caine speech in The Dark Knight, <laughs> where he's talking about how uh, some people just want to see the world burn, and you know, it, in some ways, it's like it's like, well, nobody wants that, right? And I don't know. Apparently, they do. Yeah, apparently they do. It's. It's, and that, and that, what we're talking about too is like only the first half of the movie because then, like I said, they're left. They've left the door open for actual like bad actors who do function in society to come and like usher in a new age of global hate. Like, oh yeah, they the the symbol at first gets like Pepe the Frog goes from being this innocuous stoner character in a laid back dude's comic to being uh, appropriated as a symbol of sadness and loneliness in a 
in a group of outcasts who are trying to be comfortable with who they are to them reacting to mainstream culture trying to appropriate it by debasing it um to starting to reprogram themselves to agree with the debasement to actual alt-right grifters coming in and and mobilizing yeah being the only ones who want to handle it now that it's been debased like yeah you know, one man's turd is another man's, you know, fruit symbol of, of a new world order. Like, yeah. In, in, a, in a strange way, it make it, it, you start to understand why Donald Trump became their avatar, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like he, you know, he, he is largely loathed by everyone. And, and that's how, that's how they feel. They, they see themselves as, as outcasts and, and 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 people that are loathed by society in, in general, and you know they like the, it makes you start to understand like how nothing that Trump says or does, no matter how disgusting, repre- reprehensible, or whatever, is going to shake their support of him because it doesn't matter. Like the. Yeah. The cruelty is the point. It's not yeah. about what he stands for. It's it's it, a, well, yeah. It's about it's about the destruction that he leaves in his wake. And the the irony is that these people would happily accept the fact, and probably do happily accept the fact, that Donald Trump wouldn't spit on them if they were on fire. Like they are, they are the very embodiment of the kind of loser that Donald Trump has a deep pathological fear of being yeah. and and so like he wouldn't give them the time of day and they they would hold that up as just another reason why he's so great like he doesn't he doesn't give uh a crap about anything including them yeah yeah that is and i guess another cathartic part of the movie is you do get to watch uh alex jones squirm and get uh subpoenaed and sued <laughs> yeah because um, and, and try and try to who, and try to justify why he settled and like and why his settlement was actually kind of a victory <laughs> yeah because that's the, the the other sort of half of this documentary is that like the guy this matt fury guy is now trying to put the genie back in the bottle like he wants to wrangle his creation and and you sort of watch these like you know here very much like follows the hero's journey where he has his like trials where he tries to get his friends to draw peace pepes and that just mm-hmm. like blows up in his face it clearly he doesn't understand how the internet works five <laughs> 500 peace pepes can't stand to like the thousand hitler pepes that 4chan puts out a day yeah um and uh, you know, and then you see him try to like he starts the legal battles where he can like okay, you know, he can't he can't sue someone on 4chan for making a post, but he can stop anyone who's making money from it yeah, um, because he owns the intellectual copyright to the character, yeah. so and you only just he see can po- monetize it. You see the poor guy be like, I just want to be an artist and 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 hug my daughter and make children's books, man. Like he he, he makes that wonderful. Um, Children. He was, he's a very relatable uh, um, protagonist for a documentary, but I have to assume, as you guys both as artists and dads, probably struck a chord. Oh, I, I started this whole segment saying that I, yeah. I completely empathized with him. But yeah. you see him like playing with his daughter, and he just, yeah. Yeah, but uh, as they say in the documentary, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, you can just kind of hope that it goes somewhere else. And the kind of bittersweet end point on it is the fact that it has started to be co-opted in a different direction by basically anti-authoritarian protesters and he's become a symbol of uh anti-authoritarianism and democracy in uh hong kong and that is starting to spread in kind of like asian cultures and so maybe there's hope for pepe yet and um and maybe the people who appropriated him in the first place uh are in a situation where he's now being appropriated from them. Is, who knows? Yeah, who knows? This is a this is a little bit of an aside. It's still on the topic of the movie, but I still don't understand what was going on with the guys who trade in rare Pepe's. It, it's like a form <laughs> of Bitcoin. They're like, I didn't know that watching this movie. They start at Apple, like they give you no heads up that they're going to shift topic a little bit, and then they meet a guy from Vancouver in like it was at a Lamborghini or like some yeah, kind of like something like that. Yep. Yeah. 
if it wasn't Lamborghini, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, and this guy, it, he's he's a, like a cryptocurrency trader. I'm like, okay, Bitcoin, whatever. Uh, and then he trades in rare Pepe's. And the rarest of them all is the Homer Pepe, where it's a Pepe that looks like Homer Simpson. And it's a trading card, but it's not really a trading card. And it's worth, like, he said like it was like $300,000 or something. And he bought it for, for a mere $30,000. That $30,000. I get a little numbers dyslexic sometimes. And, and, uh, thir- no, I think, I think it has gotten more expensive since. Okay. The, the value of it has inflated. I knew, I knew it, was, it was a three and some zeros. Um, but because yeah. Of, and- because money isn't real, we made it up, and it <laughs> means only what we think it means. <laughs> yeah. So... Okay, and I knew, I knew there were other kinds of cryptocurrency. Like I knew bitcoins weren't the only ones, but I did not realize Pepe the Frog trading cards counted as a cryptocurrency that you could trade enough of to buy a Lamborghini and tear ass around Vancouver in, or or a boat to live on. Yeah, but they just sort of add this bit into the middle of the movie and then carry on like it's not like with no context. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really fit into the narrative, but it is really I I mean I, I guess it fits in to the narrative of like this is really weird and it gets weirder kind of thing, you know? Like Yeah, like this is how it, yeah, gets, it it's can spread. Because the documentary is very much talking about how how far this Pepe meme has spread. And so it's touching on all of the all of the different weird ways that this character has been appropriated and evolved beyond the artist's intention and it becoming a rare form of currency is in itself a just another strange way it was co-opted right yeah yeah the, that that meme I, the idea of a meme and a gene and and th- something spreading um really really is reinforced throughout this whole movie um yeah I also really, I, I gotta give a shout out to like the aesthetic of this film. Like it, it's the closest I'm sure any of us or Matt Fury will ever get to like an animated Pepe movie, because you see the characters from Boys Club like they're the transitions. Yeah, and yeah, like, they kind of go on a journey together throughout the movie too. They they yeah. tell a silent little story along the way of the the three roommates kind of losing their friend and then maybe trying to find him again. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, just as a fan of animation, I was I found that like very endearing to watch, just like the very colorful, just well done animation, regardless <laughs> of the content. Yeah, if we're comparing and contrasting it to the the social dilemma, that this this device was probably a lot more elegant and artistic, I would say. Yeah, that's sort of what I was saying at the top, and I'm like, it was the more entertaining of the two, if the, you know. <laughs> yeah. I I I found I I found this one just at the like slightly. Even though it ended on a on a better note, it like the um, the bits with the that where they were diving deep into into four chan, I, I found I found that to be deeply crushing and and felt an intense sense of hopelessness during the middle of it. So, mm-hmm. well, and it and it kind of reinforces the first movies, uh, some of the first movies' points in the social dilemma, right? Like yeah. How dangerous this kind of social media can be if it's misused or mismanaged or or neglected or neglected or or actively maliciously weaponized uh-huh. and this is an example of how that can be done and how that happens it's a it's a good example of um, because like 4chan is not you know it's it's not facebook it's the tools aren't designed the same so it's a good it's a good example of like you know if you're someone who's a, a big fan of social media in general and you and you sort of defend its existence then you would probably point to 4chan and say look like this is this is a different type of you know uh, social media that you know it's it's its bones are really old it's been around for a long time and there's still like this horrible thing that came out of it and like the the argument being that like social media is just a tool um yeah. and and like to a certain extent i can understand that argument but it's it starts to devolve a little bit when you start to think about um how effective a tool it is like how effective facebook is how good they are at getting people to repeatedly get back on the platform how how good it is at spreading false uh, information how good it is at organizing hate groups um and and how dangerous it is to democracy because of all those things and because 
something, you know, a, a bad actor like Russia can essentially co-opt all those tools, which, I mean, if you want to argue they're innocent tools, fine, but, like, it doesn't change the fact that that a, a, a malicious state attempted to co-opt a free and fair election of a of the biggest power in the world. Yeah. That's how that's how powerful those tools are. So like the way that I see it, the way I look at it is like social media is not a hammer. It's like a nuclear bomb. Yeah. Yeah, it 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 yeah, it's a, it is a tool that is now t- way too good at doing what it's supposed to do. It's like the difference between yeah, a, a pistol and an AK-47 and a nuclear bomb. Like they're mm-hmm. it, same same ends um uh or certain yeah. yeah. Like I like, you know, when I when I started using the internet, I, I was on you know GeoCities chat and stuff like that. Yeah, and you know I was a teenager and I was getting up to no good. But like at the time, in GeoCities, the, the worst I could do was write a JavaScript that turned everyone's screen black so they couldn't see the text that they were reading. <laughs> like that's about as that's about the worst damage that I could do. You know the. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't easy to to congregate people together under, um, you know, horrible ideas. Although I'm sure that happened in GeoCities, but mm-hmm. generally, you know, it wasn't it wasn't able to sort of um, produce its reproduce itself on mass and go at scale. I think part of the issue is that people don't recognize how much impact culture has on them. And Mm -hmm. social media has made it very easy to impact the culture and propagate through the culture very efficiently in a way that we've never really had before. And like even more arguably than TV or radio or movies, because with social media, it's largely instantaneous. And then it can spread at, at the speed of how fast I can press the retweet button. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is incredibly powerful. And when you are able to influence culture that quickly and that profoundly, you can, you can change the way people think. And that needs to be taken into account when people are making and using these tools. And I don't think people do that because it's, it's wrapping your head around a concept that you've never really had. Like who, who before has thought outside of maybe like uh, David Bowie has had to think about how will this affect the culture that I live in when I release this? And we're, we're at a stage where you kind of almost have to have that in the back of your head. And that sounds maybe very egotistical to say. No, and what's um, wild is it's true because it, it is as true for Matt Fury and his cartoon as it is for Mark Zuckerberg and his website. Yeah, like, like. and but and and it, it sounds deeply narcissistic to say, well, I have the power to change culture. But the, the fact is you don't know what impact you might have today when yeah. you do put something out on the internet. And it could, much like Matt Fury, spiral wildly out of control and to, and turn into something deeply terrible <laughs> or and like you, mark zuckerberg you don't know. Like it also well, oh, and for that matter mark zuckerberg you're, you're absolutely right you're absolutely right um but and the fact is you don't know and that is thinking on uh, thinking in in the zeitgeist that's that's thinking on a higher level than than most people need or should yeah. need to do on a daily basis and yeah, yeah and then even like if like you get when there you, yeah well, or, like even if you get there you gotta go Go ahead, go ahead. Hang on. Okay. I'll, I'll it's super sure it. thoughts. We'll cut around this. And even if you get there, you then have to like take that knowledge and check it against your bottom line. You know? So, yeah. Yeah. It, you were you were saying, uh, Scott, about, you know, being able to, you know, affect, um, you know, how people think. And in fact, that did happen. Um in in a case in I think it was in 2010. Um, if you if you want to watch a documentary called the the Great Hack, um, it uh, tells the story of Cambridge Analytica and that whole mess. And uh, one of the things they did in Trinidad was to 
use the the power of um culture against people um there were um sort of two competing factions in an election uh one uh largely of um indian folk and uh one largely of um uh, uh black folk um i'm sorry if i sort of uh mess up some of the details of this i had a i had a <laughs> I had a web page up that had all the details, but I, I closed it. Whoops. Anyway, the, the 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 short of it is that they were trying to suppress uh, the vote so that the Indian Party would win the election. And how they how they did this is that they created a campaign called Do So, which was essentially uh, a campaign that was anti-vote. And the it was targeted at young people, but it wasn't it wasn't targeted at just any one party. It was par- targeted at, at both parties. Um, but what they knew was that while the 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 people on in the on the black side would probably not vote uh, on the Indian side, the the, the culture, the, the the kids that were uh, would always do what they're. Uh, parents mm-hmm. wanted them to do so the, and Cambridge Analytica knew this and they knew that even if they targeted both by and large the kids would still go out and vote on, you know on the Indian side so they won the election and that's <laughs> that tells the tape like it can you have if you're thinking that you have to change everyone's everyone's mind you're not thinking correctly that's not how that's not how these bad actors are working. They understand that a small group of people can influence a, a larger outcome, right? And they and, and indeed, like they were doing that in in the Trump election as well. They were um, they were targeting uh, smaller districts and and uh, a smaller groups of people. And they understood that like if we influence some of these people, then it'll it'll spiral outward from there, and then that will that will flip certain districts red. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, uh, it's, it's a lot to let's take in. <laughs> After all of that. And at the risk of also sounding very like, very much like we're alarmist scaremongering, yeah. um, I don't think we're doomed yet. <laughs> I don't. I don't think we are. I think there is still like a lot of good that these tools uh, provide. I think that the good might outweigh the bad. We just focus like our our world is very focused on the bad right now. And perhaps rightly so. And and the problems are significant and do need to be addressed. But I, at the end of the day, I think that this is, as they say, this is a technology that's here to stay. And it's just a matter of learning how to better use it and how to better control it. And that's kind of contingent on us being just more aware of of what these tools can do and how we're using them and how other people around us are using them. I, I completely agree, um, and perhaps pressuring uh, the people in charge, be they uh, government or private, to yeah take take away any incentive they have to to um, crank these things to eleven in the name of profit. Yeah, um, the, but like, I, the thing is, is like these tools will not fix themselves, and yeah, and hoping no. against hope that um, the majority of people see the light, and you know. Uh, develop better social media habits and things like that. Um, I just don't think is particular is realistic, at least not in the time frame that is needed. Like the, the, we, we need, um, a, uh, you know, we need a well-regulated social media industry yesterday, yeah. right? If we're, if we're, the way things are going right now, you know, we, we, <laughs> I, I used to say back in, just before Bush left office, I used to say that I thought the Americans were heading for a civil war, you know, and this is like 2008. And I used to say, well, I, you know, I think sometime in the next 20 to 30 years, that's the, where they're going. And here we are 10 years later. And that idea 
isn't even wild anymore. Like the idea of a civil war in the United States is being talked about openly on mainstream media. Right? Like that just shows like how quickly things have how badly things have gone how and, and how quickly they have gone badly yeah it's, so it, we, it's, it's a lot of a lot of different things are out of control and yeah. need to be kind of wrangled all at once yeah and they're, like, they're not affecting a, each other yeah and not all these problems lay at the foot of of uh of social media but if we don't have a system of delivering good quality information um, it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, how this gets resolved um, without a lot of suffering. Now, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I went real dark. I'm sorry, Scott. I think you're no, trying no, to true. end this on a positive note, uh, and 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 I do want to I do want to discuss a little bit more about about where we feel optimistic. But like that that's how I see it. I I, I see it I see it as a, as, as an imperative to to get these tools under control now um, because anything else is too late. The, the really terrible part to circle all the way back to uh, the social dilemma Uh is when they have the, the three dudes at the control panel in their little framing device. Uh, They have the one guy who's just all about trying to get you connected to more people they have the one guy who's trying to deliver you ads and they have the one guy who's selling your information and every now and then he'll hit a button and say sold for four cents. That is what the sum of your life is worth to these people. That is not even a joke. Those those fractions of a dollar yeah. Yeah. Are, are what you are worth to Facebook. And that is that is what is more important to them, that four cents for your entire life's worth of data and information mm-hmm. than controlling their system and preventing bad actors from being able to weaponize it. Yeah. Like so many problems in our world, it's, it's going to take, it's going to take all of us pulling in, in the right direction. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think, I think this has been a good uh, summation of these films. I do highly recommend our listeners check out both of these films. I, I don't think they are scaremongering. I think they are um, worthy of watching. Even if you watch it with a critical or skeptic eye, um, they're both very yeah. prudent and timely documentaries, and uh, you would uh, do well to uh, take them in. Yeah, you should definitely watch every documentary with a with a skeptical eye, and 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 understand uh, when dramatic devices are being used, because you know that's this is where having a, a good understanding of film is really useful, because when you're watching a documentary, you can you can you can kind of see the threads and where they're trying to pull you emotionally. So that you're a little bit more able to get the facts that you need without necessarily being drawn too heavily into the the drama of it all. Well, and the other thing to remember is that no documentary is completely objective because there are the people who are filming the documentary have have a story that they're trying to tell, even if the story is like a real life story and they have their perspective and you're seeing it through their perspective. So... Something to also keep in mind about documentary films. Uh, perfect. Uh, you can find all. Thank you all for listening today. You can find our episodes over at IHaveSomeNotes.com. Normally, this is the part where I tell you to like and subscribe and follow us on Facebook and comment. But you know what? This week, I want you to tell your friends in person about I Have Some Notes or any of the shows on the Alberta Podcast Network. Do it in person over coffee. Do it. Uh, uh, yell it on the bus. Um, <laughs> Uh, just bring it up. Make someone take their headphones off and line in front of you at the coffee shop, and uh, just be like, "This this podcast I'm listening to is real good." Um, that's that's this week's call to action, uh, Scott. You can of course uh, check out other podcasts as well. In between your yelling at random strangers, um, you can check out a bunch that maybe won't ruin your day as much as ours just did. Uh, over at albertapodcastnetwork.com, you can find great shows like the Mess Hall Podcast, where you'll learn plenty of facts about the history of food. You can check out that show and many more on a variety of topics right now at albertapodcastnetwork.com. And we'll be back in uh, in two weeks for uh, a Halloween episode. Uh, we are doing uh, Stephen King's Christine. Classic horror movie. <laughs> 
Yes. Got a boy in his car. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Liam Kreswick. I'm Scott C. Bourgeois. I'm Greg Beaver. Wear a face mask. Black Lives Matter. Uh, delete your Facebook. <laughs> Keep yeah. watching the skies. We here at I Have Some Notes are in the business of giving notes. That means good advice. That means sound suggestions. And that includes to our listeners. And today, our note for you is to go check out what is new with our friends at StoryHive. Since 2013, Tell Us Story Hive has funded productions and supported emerging filmmakers with mentorship and guidance from the National Screen Institute, or the old NSI as the kids call it. The Story Hive program has brought hundreds of films to life from creators in Western Canada. Damn, that's where we are! We're in Western Canada, this is the Alberta Podcast Network. They're talking about us, talking about you! Story Hive is committed to supporting underrepresented filmmakers and stories, which is why we want you to jump on this opportunity. Take the note. It's sound advice. You get into it. Story Hive Documentary Edition. Apropos for this episode, I have some notes. Uh, Documentary Edition is back, and this one is all about local heroes. They are looking for documentary pitches from Alberta residents that highlight extraordinary citizens in your community, big or small. Successful pitches will receive $20,000 and $20,000. That's a lot of honey from the story hive. But it's true. Successful pitches will receive $20,000 and customized mentorship to produce their project. Applications are open until October 7th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. Check eligibility requirements and apply now at storyhive.com.